We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Do you feel restless and wound up? Do you have difficulty concentrating? Are you irritable? Do you have headaches and other unexplained pains? Do you worry a lot? Maybe you suffer from anxiety attacks or, like many people today, have been given a mental health diagnosis which includes one of the anxiety disorders. And the more you look into this area, the more anxious you become. That's why I've decided to take a deep dive into the topic of anxiety with Dr Anna Coulton, who is a clinical psychologist who specialises in working with teenagers, in particular on performance anxiety. Now, growing up, what was your family's relationship with anxiety? I think it was seen as a pretty normal thing, as it is a pretty normal thing. You know, we are we are primarily wired to feel anxious. And so the idea that we should ever be without any anxiety, certainly to me, is a very strange one. When I was growing up, I think, you know, maybe there was a bit more concern about extreme anxiety, but I think it was all seen as part of the normal makeup of life. And you don't think it's seen as the normal makeup of life anymore? Yeah, no, I wish it was seen as more normal because although, of course, many people struggle and it's a deeply uncomfortable emotion, it is also the thing that keeps us safe. You know, we are we are primarily wired to detect threat and to respond to it in an instant without conscious thought. And, you know, if, if we weren't wired that way, then we would find ourselves in some really dangerous situations more often than we do. So I think that it would be great if people kind of were able to say, you know, to feel a bit worried, to feel a bit anxious is is really very normal. It's not pathological. It's not, you know, something that is abnormal. And of course, when it really negatively impacts your life, when when it is detrimental, when it stops you doing things, yes, you need to pay attention to it and try and manage it. But I think it is seen as a pathology a little too frequently for my liking. I was sort of thinking of this idea that every family has a sort of like a family motto about anxiety. Nobody actually says it because uh, that would be too easy. And often the unspoken messages are the strongest ones. So it's almost like unknown to everybody over the entry, they have a saying across the top. And so I sometimes say with my clients sort of, you know, finish this off. Anxiety is or anger is, or whatever, but we're talking about anxiety today. And before we started this podcast, I thought, what would have our family one been? And I came up with two. Mm -hmm. Just knuckle down and get on with it, and it's all in the head. I mean... (laughs) Did you have anything similar to that yourself? Uh, well, my mum used to have a lot of sayings that came from her mum. One of the favourites was adapt or perish, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't only used in relation to anxiety, I can tell you, but uh, it was, it, you know, it, it was very frequently <laughs> wheeled out that one. And I suppose I, I'm certainly often known to say, well, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, which I know is a very commonly used one. But, but when you unpick what that's about, it can be quite helpful. 
you know, the idea that it's, it's okay to feel scared and you can do something just because you feel a bit scared doesn't mean you have to run away from it. So I'm, I'm quite a believer in feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. So I just would like to sort of pull up before we go further into the subject of anxiety, a time when you felt the fear and did it anyway. So you were balancing four children and a job with the NHS as an adolescent and eating disorder specialist, and you decided to go to drama school. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that really was outside of my comfort zone. <laughs> did you get some anxiety when you thought about that? No, I didn't get any anxiety when I thought about it. But my God, did I spend a year anxious because literally everything I was asked to do over that year was new and totally different to much of what I'd spent the last decade doing. I mean, first of all, why? And then I'll ask about what you learned from it. I did a lot of music growing up. So I, I performed. Yeah, I wasn't particularly brilliant, but I was reasonably competent. I did perform a lot and really enjoyed that. Not to say that I did it without, you know, any stage fright. I, I did. I, I did have, you know, performance anxiety, but I loved that. And I did at university, I did a lot of musical theatre, Amdram, obviously. And actually prior to university, I'd undenied about music college. So it was always that kind of aspect of, of me and my life was always pretty present. And then I, I didn't, for, for many reasons, go to music college, but I did carry on with, with all sorts of music and theatre and went down the clinical psychology route. Probably it was a little more straightforward than taking the risk into uh, performing arts and continued to do quite a lot of amateur stuff through my training, through my clinical training, and when I had my children. And I, I always had a bit of a, why didn't I try it? It was just gutless. I took the easy option. Why did I not do the thing that I really most loved in the world, which was music or, you know, all of that. And <laughs> then got into this mindset of, I don't want to find myself lying on my deathbed <laughs> thinking I didn't even try. So let me try, let me audition and get it out of my system. I have to say, I never expected to get into drama school. You know, people really struggle to get into drama school. It's unbelievably difficult. It wasn't part of my thinking at that time that it would come to fruition. Actually, I just wanted to get the what ifs and the if onlys out of my system. So I didn't, you know, get to a stage in my life where I thought, oh, I never, I never did it. I was just, you know, I was just a wuss. So <laughs> I applied and did a fair few first round auditions. And I was quite restricted in what I was applying for because I did have four very young children. And of course, didn't tell anybody really outside of my immediate family what I was doing because it was pretty bonkers. <laughs> and then, then a recall, a couple of recalls came in and I thought, uh, no, no, what? What? Now I need to learn new stuff. And it, I had never done any pure text auditions before my drama school auditions. I'd done, as I say, lots of music, lots of singing, lots of musical theatre, but I'd never done a monologue. So these were my first monologues. <laughs> and I got a recall, of course. And I say, of course, because of course that's what happened. And so I thought, oh, well, I better go do the recall. But I wasn't expecting this and had to learn some new stuff. And then, you know, quite a lot of it was workshopped and that was all very new. And then I thought, well, that's it, it's done. It didn't go very well, I didn't think. So great. And at that time, my boss in the NHS was saying, are you coming to present at this conference? Can you please come? And I was saying, well, I kind of need to find out if I can get the childcare for a few days out of London because I was trying to stall things. And then an offer came in <laughs> and I was 
I mean, really gobsmacked because I didn't expect it. But then I was faced with this decision of, well, I started this process so that I wouldn't be lying on my deathbed thinking I never even tried. Now what am I going to (laughs) do? And so I did kind of very much feel the fear and do it anyway. And I said, no, I'm not coming to present at this conference because actually I'm giving my notice because I'm going off to drama school. And what was their reaction? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, in some ways it was the very best way to give a notice because I wasn't going off to a different job that was supposedly better. I was going off to do something completely different. Uh, Real surprise, because of course I hadn't disclosed that part of my life. I hadn't, you know, talked about the fact that I was even applying. So it was completely out of the blue, but incredibly supportive. I should say I had a huge amount of support. And the reason I sort of brought this up, and this is just a sort of a a faint suspicion here, that sometimes sort of anxiety and unlived lives might in some way be connected. What do you think? Yes, I think there, there, there is often a connection, isn't it? And it partly depends on where you are in your life and how far through and, and what you've done and what you'd like to do and expectations and the, the, the gap between your expectation of yourself and where you're actually at. But there is often a, uh, either I want to do this, this is my desire, and, but it feels very difficult, or I should have done, I wish I had done. And I think there is a relationship there between fulfilment, anxiety, lived life, unlived life. So it might be worth thinking if anxiety is an issue, you know, what would I have liked to have done? What am I not doing? What do you think? For sure. For me, I always, when I work, I work with a lot of anxiety and it's always very much, what is its function? I think it's really important to realise that it serves a function. Now, often the function is a function we don't know is there or we haven't discovered yet. What is it preventing you from doing? What is it helping you to avoid? Similar but different. What is it helping you to do? What role is it keeping you in? What role is it preventing you from taking on? So there, I always think there are huge numbers of questions to explore about the function of an anxiety that comes into life or that is there and is, is, is making a real impact on someone's life. I, I love that sort of double half to the question, something that's keeping you in or stopping you from doing? And I mean, those Mm. sound like two brilliant questions. We seem to have been using the terms anxiety and fear interchangeably. Are they the same thing or are they something different? I think they're the same, but I think sometimes it's about the gradation of the fear or the level of the fear. So I often think that, you know, you can be a little bit anxious and that might be when your your fear volume, for want of a better phrase, or your fear dial is down at around two or three. But as you get towards it, you become more and more anxious. You know, I think it changes from feeling just nerve wracking to scary and you become from anxious to fearful. So I think it's about the heat or the volume potentially. But fundamentally, I think it is the same thing and we're talking about a range. And I mean, sometimes it can be about something in particular that, you know, you're anxious about performing, for example, or they can actually be sort of things you can't actually put your finger on what the actual things are. I mean, so what do you do in those sort of kind of circumstances? Well, in a therapeutic context, I think the whole purpose is to be really interrogative about what is this anxiety? What is this fear about? Sometimes it feels like you can't put your finger on it, but when you really dig down there with lots of very different questions, you can arrive at something almost always. So, you know, 
that's where the kind of what is it helping you with? What is it stopping you from? What is it helping you avoid? All of those questions. What is underlying this? If you didn't have this worry right now, what would you be doing that's different to what you're doing right now? If you weren't feeling this way, what might you be doing or how would your life be looking or what choices would you be making? So I think usually with enough exploration, you can get somewhere into understanding it. And what sort of surprising answers have you discovered when you've been working with people to those questions? Gosh, that's a great question. One that has stayed with me is, well, it, you know, stops me being lonely, Ah. which I have to say was fascinating. In context, it fitted beautifully. But that idea of always having something with you or something very familiar, a bit of identity or a bit of a kind of a crutch or or another voice, was was a surprising discovery, certainly in that instance. I think what I notice most and what I try and work with people to understand is that often, because physiologically it's so uncomfortable to be anxious, people very much want to get rid of it. But without understanding it, it's not possible to get rid of it because you're trying to get rid of something that that doesn't really make sense. And that there is usually something a little bit helpful, a little bit protective about it. And so you're trying to get rid of something that is in your life to protect you. And so, and again, it all for me comes back to the understanding until you understand what that protection is. You're very unlikely to be able to get rid of it. And what about the anxiety disorders? We've got generalised anxiety disorder, anxiety disorder, OCD, panic disorder, phobias, How do they fit into this whole pattern? I think the anxiety disorders, or at least diagnostic criteria, are very helpful when they inform treatment. They're very helpful when they inform understanding, but otherwise I think people can get really hung up on them and they're not terribly helpful. You know, does it really matter if you've got a generalised anxiety or a specific phobia? Yes, it really matters in understanding how it impacts your life and what you might do. And so whether you might go for a graded exposure type CBT treatment or whether you might go for a different type of therapy, great, really helpful. Helpful for a clinician to kind of go, oh, I I get it. I get it in shorthand. I know what I'm, you know, this is. But given that everybody is different, everybody's presentation is different. You know, one person's emetophobia, which is a fear of being sick, is different to somebody else's emetophobia. So you can't just take a diagnosis for granted anyway. You still have to explore with someone what their particular form of emetophobia might look like or and tailor treatment accordingly. So I think it's really useful at a top level, but I think we can get too hooked up in these diagnostic criteria and it can prevent the curiosity, which I think is the fundamental to, you know, to understanding it, working through it and finding a way that feels more comfortable. So let's be curious. Let's sort of think about sitting with our anxiety first, because we can't actually be curious with something until we actually sit with it. So, I can imagine people thinking, oh, blooming heck, I don't want to sit with blooming anxiety. So, give us some help. How do we sit with anxiety long enough to be curious about it? Partly it depends how profound it is, because I think what is really important to say is that anxiety is a very physiological, it's physical. You know, when the brain releases adrenaline, The adrenaline causes a whole host of physical symptoms and they are real. I rebel against the idea that they're psychosomatic or, you know, they're not real. They are real. Adrenaline causes butterflies, palpitations, increased heart rate, nausea, upset tummy, needing the loo. It causes 
the digestive system to shut down. It causes the immune system to shut down. So these are very, very real things that happen when we get adrenaline running through our system. And so people have to be within what's called a kind of a window of tolerance to, as I'm sure you know, to sit with their feelings. So one, it depends how anxious somebody is because you can't expect someone in full panic to sit with it because they're completely flooded. In a less severe context, it means just noticing, being, I always think, going through the body. So what is it you're feeling? You know, if you just almost do a body scan, what is it you're feeling in your head? Is it hot? Is it fuzzy? Is it noisy? Can you hear things? What are you feeling in your stomach? Is it churning? What do you, you know, what are you feeling in your chest? Does it feel tight? Do you feel your heart beating? Do you think you can hear your heart beating? And so instead of trying to push it away, to start to notice through your body, because I think it is much easier to notice through your body than through your thoughts, certainly at the beginning. And rather than going, yes, well, I feel really worked up and I, my heart's beating fast and, and I'm breathing quite fast and it's all very tense. That's one level. But okay, what does it feel like if you have to describe it to someone? And I often will use a kind of an acting analogy of saying, if, if someone were having to play you on stage right now or in a film, mm. how would they get to a place that's quite close to where you're at? How would you describe what you're feeling? Not just the kind of the uh, umbrella, but how would somebody be able to play the role of you right now. Tell me in more detail. And actually, by the time you've done that exercise, often I find that the anxiety has kind of dropped because that is what sitting with it is. It's going, how does this feel to me? What's it like? Where do I feel it? What am I noticing? Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, my legs feel really heavy. I wonder why. Or whatever it may be. You know, everybody's manifestation is different. So I think that can be quite a useful way in. But going in through the body is, is a great place to start. And I think we've also got to stress the opposite of that. Don't actually go in through the head and describe the thoughts that are doing it because they will just amplify, whereas actually going to the body grounds you. Absolutely. Do you think it's actually important to try and name the feeling as well? You know, is this anxiety? Is it fear? Is it panic? I know I was once having to go to the dentist and I'm terrified of the dentist. And as I was driving there, I was feeling sort of like butterflies and whatever. And I just pulled the car over and I said to myself, you know, what is this feeling? You know, is it anxiety? Is it panic? Is it dread? What is it? And actually, it was quite useful to realise that it wasn't panic. It was more dread. But that sort of, that helped me because obviously these things are different. So what do you think about trying to name what the feeling is? Oh, well, I'm a big advocate for as broad an emotional vocabulary as you can have from as young an age as is possible. I think that's a life skill to have a, as many words as you can to name different varieties of any feeling. Right. And so I, I think that is really useful. There are, of course, people for whom it is really difficult. And then you get hooked up in the kind of, but I don't know what it is. And that causes more anxiety. So I think as long as you're somebody who can who can name it, who can be curious and who can have just a little bit of distance so they can say, what is it that I'm feeling? Okay, that's quite helpful. That helps me to ground. Great. I think if it's going to cause an uptick in anxiety and increase it, it's obviously less helpful in that moment. But yeah, the the more words you have for how you're feeling, the better. So can you give us some more words that fit into this anxiety cloud then? So yes, I'm anxious. I'm panicky. I'm feeling unsettled, dread terror, concerned, angsty. 
because some people say I'm just angsty, you know, mm. and it, it doesn't really matter. It's what fits for you. Uh, mm. Frightened, fearful, overwhelmed, often get overwhelmed, flooded. And then I, I think people do sometimes say I'm just catastrophizing. And whilst that is a kind of a thought-based description. It is It is also a description of, of anxiety, isn't it? That something catastrophic is going to happen. You know, I'm overwhelmed. It's, it's all a disaster, doom laden. <laughs> so there are loads and I'm sure I've missed many. And I, I was just thinking we haven't had existential angst because I think that sometimes there can be something that's really underneath all of this. And, you know, this might actually be perfectly valid I think with my dental phobias, I mean, I'm getting much better with it. There is that sense of not being able to see what's going on and being out of control that is actually at the bottom of it. And I think that helps because then you can actually say, and and I can actually say to the dentist, you know, tell me what you're doing because that really helps. And if you can actually understand a bit of it, that helps you to be able to communicate with other people about it too. Completely. Understanding is so important. And the the control issue is an interesting one, I always think, because actually there's much less of our lives over which we have control than we like to believe. And even, even less than that, much less of our life do we have certainty about than we would like to feel. And that lack of certainty often causes a lot of anxiety. And it's really normal to try and impose certainty, but actually a much more effective technique is becoming more comfortable with feeling uncertain and with being uncertain. So have you got any sort of exercises that we can do to help (laughs) us with all of this horrible anxiety? I'm sure you've discussed it on other podcasts and everybody will have heard talk of breathing techniques. But breathing techniques are so important because they change the way our body's working. They change our physiology. It's not just, oh, well, breathe, breathe deeply. They're very specific. You know, the out-breath has to be longer than the in-breath. You can change the gas balance in your body by the way you breathe. And when you breathe out for a long time, your heart rate slows. And when your heart rate slows, your brain thinks, oh, great, I'm safe. And so then the anxiety comes down. So breathing exercises, as long as basically your out-breath is much longer than your in-breath, are all incredibly effective. And particularly when you're panicky, you know, the, the, the greater the anxiety, the more important the breathing, I think, because the more difficult it is to get a handle on thoughts and the more important it is to go through the body. So breathing techniques, and, and there are a number, you know, I don't, there's, there's loads from pursed lips breathing, which is where you kind of tighten the O feeling and you breathe out. That means that the air has got some resistance. The air has something to resist against when it's coming out and therefore your out breath takes longer than if you just all in one go. All sorts of different techniques that are really, really helpful. I like to work with people in terms of grounding. So, you know, feet on the floor, or if you're very anxious, sitting on the floor, lying on the floor, making sure as much of your body is making contact with the ground as possible. That can actually just be very grounding um, to make that contact with the ground itself or with a wall or with the back of the chair and to notice how your body makes contact with whatever you're sitting on or standing next to, especially because being anxious makes us pretty jittery. 
So I like that, that not only you're doing a body scan of where the feelings are in your body, but you're actually thinking about, you know, what is contacting the body at the moment. So I've got my arm resting on my desk. I've got my feet firmly, one foot on the floor. I've got my feet crossed. So maybe I should put both feet on the floor and I'm sitting, I can feel my buttocks against the chair as well. Right. And can you feel your toes spreading into the floor or into your shoe? And what does it feel like? Is there more pressure going through your toe or your heel? You know, you can expand with every thought or every question how much detail you go into. And the more detail you can go into, of course, the more distracted your mind will become away from the anxiety and into your body and the more grounded you will become. None of these, I should say, you know, whether it's breathing or grounding or any of these techniques, they can take a little bit of time. I think it's always nice to imagine that, that, you know, a few breaths and you'll feel better. It can take a few minutes for the physiology to change. And maybe to start trying to do this when you're not, you're not, you're not hitting the 10 on the dial, so to speak. So maybe start practicing this with the lower anxiety items so that you've, you've sort of got a good grasp of them before you really need them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I will, I will say to people I work with practice when you're not feeling anxious. Because if you can do it when you're not feeling anxious, it's going to be harder when you are. But at least if you've practiced, you've had an experience of it and you know what you're going to want to be doing. Whereas if you just try in peak anxiety, it's it's not really very possible if you've never done it before. So what do we do about the thoughts now? We've got ourselves into our body. We're properly grounded, but our brain is going to be full of lots of thoughts. What do we do and about all those? of them catastrophic? <laughs> <laughs> Because that's the nature of the beast, right? So I will never find a new lover, for example. I will never find a new lover. I will never get a job that I want. It's going to be a disaster. They're going to think I'm weird. I'm going to forget my lines on stage and dry. I'm going to make a complete fool of myself. I'll never be employed again. I'll fail every audition I go to and so on. Because that that really is the nature. So when the uh, adrenaline courses through the brain and the body, all of those physical symptoms, but the psychological symptoms are these catastrophic thoughts. And when you think of it from an evolutionary perspective, the catastrophic thoughts are brilliant things. In fact, all of it's brilliant from an evolutionary perspective, because if you are in life-threatening danger, you really need to be hooked into the anxiety to get yourself out of the dangerous situation. And those catastrophic thoughts keep you hooked in with the intention of getting you out and to safety. But we're luckily in the world we we live in right now, not usually in life-threatening danger. So those catastrophic thoughts that are primal and evolutionary are rarely needed for the level of anxiety that we're currently facing. Anyway, so how to deal with those thoughts. One of the things I will often, I think is useful is say, have I done everything I can do right now in this moment to keep myself safe or to deal with whatever it is I'm imagining going wrong. So, you know, have I prepared my interview? Have I gone through lots of questions? Have I been going to bed at a sensible time? Have I discussed possible scenarios with a mentor or a a spouse or a partner, whoever it may be? Have I done all those things? And then to say, is there anything right now that I haven't done I could do now? And if the answer is yes, do it. Do whatever you can do in that moment that will make you feel safe, for want of a a better word, but make you feel that you've done as much as you can do. And then thereafter, all of these catastrophic thoughts I describe as neurological junk. They're junky thoughts chucked out by our primal brain to keep us hooked into a danger. Great. But if you're not actually in that danger in that moment, they're just junk thoughts that can go in the bin. 
And do you just say to yourself, no, or is that impossible? I think you can say this isn't helping me. This thought is not helping me. It's not getting me anywhere. You know, anxiety can be really like a rocking chair. It moves you, it rocks you backwards and forwards, but you don't travel very far. And so you can say, is this moving me towards where I want to be? Is this helping me? Is this thought assisting me in doing whatever I need to do? And if the answer is no, then actually in some ways, it's just a rumination that is going to hinder. So I would say, Engaging in this is just going to make life worse. I'm going to feel worse. It's taking me away from connecting with my family, my friends, whoever it may be. It's stopping me sleeping. It's preventing me from doing all sorts of things that would actually benefit me. I'm not engaging. I think if you say it's stupid and and I'm being an idiot and all of those things, actually you then get pulled down a path of I'm inadequate and that's not so helpful either. So I think, you know, this isn't helpful to me right now. I've done everything I can do to attend to this in this moment. I'm not engaging. Is, is better because anxiety is like a plant. When you want a plant to grow, you give it sunlight and water and it should grow. When you deprive it of sunlight and water, it will start to wilt and then shrivel and ultimately the plant will die if it doesn't have any sunlight or water. And anxiety is very similar. If you want to grow anxiety, you give it lots and lots of attention and lots and lots of airtime. They're quite different, I think. Airtime is how much time you spend thinking about it and t- attention, I think, is how strongly you engage with it. So if you give anxiety lots of attention and airtime, actually you grow it a bit like a beautiful plant. But if you can start to deprive it of attention and airtime, it will start to wilt a little bit and then it will start to shrivel and then it will start to lessen. So I sometimes think that plant analogy is quite a good one because it's quite visual and easy. And I like that idea of how much attention you give it, because I was sitting here as you were talking, thinking, what's the difference between rumination, which I don't think is particularly helpful, and being curious, which might be helpful. And I think you're not curious for long chunks of time. You ruminate for long chunks of time, don't you? Right. That's a really great distinction. Rumination, it's the same thing round and round and round and round again with no change, isn't it? So it's, it's like kind of being on a, on a merry-go-round that just continues to go round. Whereas I think curiosity is almost outward looking or you're looking for new and different understandings and explanations. Questions arise from curiosity. Questions don't arise from rumination. And I think it's a really important distinction. Absolutely. And you can deal with rumination by actually writing down what's actually going on in your head sometimes, because actually, after you've written about five sentences, you've probably got to the bottom of it, whereas your head can ruminate for, you know, 15 minutes sort of kind of thing. And that 15 minutes feels like a second. (laughs) You can lose a lot of time to rumination. And so I get my clients sometimes to just take dictation from their brain. So, you know, no editing, just let's have it out. And I put it down on a piece of paper and then I read it back to them and I say, is there any of that you'd like to change now? And they Mm. sometimes will immediately say, well, obviously that's preposterous that I'm never going to meet somebody who's going to love me. I mean, how do I know that, you know, between now and the end of time? How can one possibly know all of that information? So you can sometimes challenge those thoughts once they're down on Mm, paper. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, you know, we get pulled in by the thoughts that have a lot of emotional content and usually heavy emotional content. We don't get pulled in by the thoughts that are light and frothy and don't really hold much emotion. But we we have 
60 or 70,000 thoughts a day that go in and out of our heads. And we notice a very small number of them. And the ones that we notice, as I say, are usually the ones that are loaded with uncomfortable emotional content. And then we get hooked a bit like, you know, a fish can get caught on a fish hook when it takes the bait. And when we become hooked, we miss all of the other thoughts that go in and out of our heads. And we just get stuck on that one, which is where the rumination comes in. So yeah, it's great to challenge them. So one of the things you say is anxiety is in the future. Unpack that for me. Anxiety is in the future. It's not possible. If you think about something that you feel anxious about, it cannot be in your past. It can't be. I would ask anyone listening now to think about something that they worry about and work out, has it already happened? The answer is no. Now, something might have happened which might have a consequence in your future, but that's still about the future. And that consequence could be in a minute's time, but that minute's not in your present because the being in the present has passed so very quickly. So (laughs) anxiety can only really exist about the future. It can't exist about the past. It's about the consequence of the past, sure, but it's about what is going to happen, what happens when, what happens if. But what if is a very common question. But what if this? But what if that? But 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 what if actually I do screw up that performance or I do dry on stage or I forget my lines or, you know, what if my friend judges me as being, you know, boring? Those are all future. And come into the here and now, sitting on the chair, doing the breathing and it will be easier. Yeah. Because if you're genuinely in the present moment, you know, noticing your breath or engaging with someone on a one-to-one in that moment, your brain is not however far into the future that it needs to be to feel anxious. Now, you might have some physical symptoms, you might not, but anxiety can't exist in in the past or even in the, the real present. And what I see quite a lot, and I'm, I have a sneaking suspicion you see too, is a lot of high performers and anxiety. Am I right with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Loads. And why do the two things go together and what can you do about it? So by high performers, I just want to check that we're talking about the same thing. When I mean that, I mean people who are really, it doesn't matter what field, what area, but really performing at a very high level. And that, that could be on a stage, but it could also be, you know, coding a computer. Or managing a department, exactly. flying around the world, doing important things where people hand you documents as you pace down hallways sort of kind of thing. Yeah, anything where you're really operating on a very high level, because the stakes are usually quite high. Right. If you ha- if you are performing at that level, then you have a lot of responsibility. You also have high expectations of yourself. You know, you 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 think, well, I can do this. I want to do this. I I want to be the next CEO, or I need to sort out this this dispute, or I I need to get the company to this stage, or I need to make sure this board presentation is superb, or actually I'm on the West End stage in front of fifteen hundred people every single night, or I'm at the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games in front of millions. So that the stakes become incredibly high when you're a high performer or an elite performer, and I think the higher the stakes understandably, the greater the aspiration and therefore the greater the the consequences of, of not doing it the way you want to do it. And the more anxious and focused people become on achieving whatever it is they want to at the level they want to achieve it. So I think they go hand in hand, actually. And do they need extra tools if actually these these anxieties might actually be very real anxieties as opposed to you know my my ones in the dentist i've never had a really bad experience the dentist they're they're sort of 
there's not an awful lot of substance to these. But, you know, if the future of the company is resting on your shoulders, I mean, I think you are going to feel blooming anxious. You might feel really anxious. Yeah. Some people may not, though. And and everything has substance in that, you know, I think, you know, if you're really scared of the dentist, you're really scared of the dentist. You know, if you engage in a, well, I shouldn't be because actually it's it's, it's silly and it's it's unsubstantial, you're not going to deal with the fear of the dentist because you spend too much time putting yourself down. Um, I'm a big believer that if it's there, it, it's valid, it's fine, and it can be worked with. And yes, it's true that, of course, if there is a reality to the, the weight, the future of the company is sitting on my shoulders, that will often cause anxiety. But if you engage in the anxiety, almost always you will stop focusing on what you can do to assist the company. The anxiety pulls focus away from action and into rumination often. So it's about how you, I think it's how, I really believe it's how you harness it. It's not how you get rid of it. How do you make it really useful and effective to you? How do you get out of the place where it's running you and you're feeling overwhelmed to a place where it's informing you and you're using it to do whatever you need to do to help the company move forward, to help your performance, to help your friendships, your social interactions, your love life, whatever it may be. How do you use it rather than how does it overwhelm you? And I'm just going to slightly refocus that back again. Accept it and ask yourself how you can harness it. I think that's a a beautiful idea. How do you harness it? And we're going to talk about harnessing in a letter that I'm going to be looking at in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, if you would like to get involved with The Meaningful Life, there's all sorts of ways you can do that. You can become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. You'll find details on our website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. You can also find there how to become somebody on our Substack mailing list. Um, I have a newsletter full of interesting articles You can get that each fortnight for free. And once again, if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com, you'll find out how to do that. On the podcast page, you will also find a way to send in a letter to us. And here is a letter that I'm going to be discussing with Anna. My wife has told me that she's fallen out of love and that she considers our relationship is past repair. Up to that point, I suppose I've been discounting her happiness. I knew we had problems, but they weren't that bad. Certainly not bad enough to go for couple counselling like she asked for. Her declaration and the full realisation that splitting up is not something I want has finally put a rocket under my ass. She won't go to counselling anymore, but I can go and I have done, and I've taken a long, hard look at myself. It is not a pretty sight. I can see that a lot of her comments about me as a husband and a father were true. I've been making some changes, actually lots of them, The household is more relaxed and our children are less fractious. My wife has thawed but still says the relationship is over. However, she's not putting pressure on me to leave anymore. I keep telling myself whatever happens, these changes are the right thing to do for me. But I keep spoiling everything by getting anxious. Has she noticed the changes? Did she appreciate it when I took the children off her hands for the whole weekend so she could meet a work deadline? 
I keep asking for reassurance like she's my mother, and it's not only annoying her, but puts another brick back into the wall between us. Anna, do you recognise this dilemma? Oh, yes. And actually, seeking reassurance. I mean, you know, he said it, hasn't he? Seeking reassurance is now causing a problem. And if we take a pure anxiety perspective, reassurance seeking fundamentally doesn't work. It's a very short term, or ex- seeking external reassurance, I should say. It doesn't work. It's a very short term strategy, completely normal and natural. You know, really, really, we all want external reassurance that we're doing the right thing or that we're making progress or whatever it may be. And when we're anxious, we all want reassurance that it's going to be okay. The very difficult two things are one, when the reassurance doesn't come and we have to kind of go, I don't know if it's going to be okay. I have to sit with the discomfort. I have to sit with the uncertainty, which takes us back to something we discussed at the very beginning, doesn't it? But I have to sit with the uncertainty of not knowing, is this going to fix my marriage? Or is my wife going to appreciate it? Is she going to notice? I don't know. I have to sit with that. And I also have to find a way to give myself internal reassurance. So I know that I took the kids for a weekend and I know that that is going to have been better for her than had I not taken the kids. It's so difficult, but stopping the reassurance seeking means you have to sit with uncertainty. I'd like to sort of go into how you give yourself internal reassurance, because that feels like a a really useful idea. Mm, It's really not an easy thing to do, I should say that. I'm always aware that, that I have these conversations and I make it sound so simple, but it's really not simple. It's finding an inner pool of resources to say something along the lines of whether or not she shows her appreciation, I know that I have done something helpful. I can validate myself in that. I can say, actually, I know that I had the kids for the whole weekend and that freed her up to meet her work deadline. That is enough reassurance for me. Great if she gives me the gratitude and I get the external reassurance as well that that was helpful or the external validation or thanks. That's a bonus, but it's enough for me to know that I did something, one, that was different to what I might used to do. And two, that by its very nature was of benefit to her. I can validate myself. And I, and I think it does actually go right back to our childhood because, you know, when you're a small child, you have to get external validation. You know, the teacher says you're good. I mean, how else will you know? You sort of get validation from your mother that that was good. You don't sort of know as a kid. And it, there is something about anxiety that takes us right back to our childhood, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Because we feel so very vulnerable when we feel anxious and we want someone to make us feel better. And that's, again, these things are all normal and natural. But one of the roles we take as a parent is to help our children, hopefully, to create internal validation. That's where self-worth comes from. You know, if, if you seek always external validation and you can't find any internal validation, then it's like building a house on quicksand. And for as long as the quicksand is stable and doesn't move, everything is fine. And that's what it's like with external validation. When the external validation keeps coming in, everything feels stable. But the minute it disappears, it's like the the house on quicksand. It starts to disappear and sink and shift. Whereas when we have internal self-esteem, internal self-worth, and we're able to validate ourselves internally and say, I know that what I did there, you know, that was a, a helpful thing to do. That was the right thing to do. You know, I did something good for someone else for whatever purpose. It's like having solid deep foundations to a house which will remain stable even if the environment becomes rocky. 
Now, even if you're giving yourself internal validation, you're sort of doing this 24-7. Well, you know, all the hours that you're at home, you're dealing with this. Any Anything else that you can suggest that is actually going to help him get focused or cope with his anxiety? It sounds like she has done an awful lot. It sounds like he feels he left it too late to do it, but actually he has, you know, gone to therapy, started to have a look at his behaviours, how they've impacted people. I would say find some other social support so that when he's feeling worried or concerned, he can speak to someone else and doesn't need to necessarily seek it from his wife. Find a community to engage with, interact with, to get support from, because it can be really lonely if you don't have a broader support network and your mind can spiral in ways you don't want and you can need to seek uh, reassurance from the same person over and over and over when you can broaden your net of support and you can have more than one or two people to talk to, I think it is really beneficial for everybody because he says, I keep spoiling everything. Well, it's quite a broad brush joke. I keep spoiling everything, isn't it? We might want to challenge that thought. You've spoiled one thing at one moment, not everything. And maybe it wasn't even spoiling it. Maybe it was causing some irritation or, you know, generating some irritation. Maybe it wasn't even spoiled. But, Mm. you know, she's not appreciating all the requests for reassurance and she doesn't want to give them. So how do you, how do you learn to sit with your uncertainty? How do you learn to sit with your distress? Who can you bring in to help you and support you through that when you're feeling really wobbly? Who can you turn to that is not her and build a, a broader, strong social support network to see you through? You must see a lot of this, this kind of thing in the work you do. Yes. And what I always say is actually the problem is often not with your wife. The problem is actually with you and your anxiety. And it's Mm. really important to actually realise that because you can actually do something about your own anxiety. You can do nothing about your wife's feelings and emotions. And so if you direct it all outwards, then you're really going to get to the point where where the anxiety is going to become sort of panicky and that is never a good thing. Whereas what can I do differently is a very useful question to ask yourself. Absolutely. It's a brilliant question. And also I was just thinking as you were talking that there is lots of evidence in this letter that everything he has done has been really beneficial. You know, the household is more relaxed and our children less fractious. I think those are two massive things. And so taking some comfort from, you know, this is all worth it because whatever the outcome, these benefits are already unfolding. There's tangible, measurable, demonstrable evidence that things are improving for my kids within the house. And I think the other thing actually is that, that it seems that the focus is on the ultimate outcome of the marriage. Whereas actually, if you can pull the focus back onto the children being happier, the house being more relaxed, the kind of the interactions being less fraught, that might be easier as well. It might make things easier. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing I say. You're only allowed when you're in, in crisis to think one week ahead. So, you know, how am I going to get it through the weekend is sort of a quite a useful sort of kind of question. If you're thinking, you know, what's the future of my marriage? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Immediately your anxiety level goes up and that isn't helpful. So focusing back down, not on just now, but, you know, the next few days is much, much more manageable. Absolutely. 
So I hope that helps. I have to say thank you very much for being a witness on The Meaningful Life, and I have to turn the attention to you. What makes your life meaningful? Well, it might be a little dull, but, but you know, my family is really profoundly important to me. My kids, my husband, my wider family, you know, make my life meaningful. And then the work I do, you know, I'm, I feel that it's a great privilege to be allowed to go on people's journeys with them and hopefully you know, be a guide or a participant in their making changes and improving their lives in the way they want. Now, there's one element of your work that we haven't had time to talk about that I would really like to do, which is helping teens have a positive body image and not being anxious about their body images. So that's what we're going to talk about in the bonus material. If you'd like to hear that, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. Or remember, we're available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.